We are finishing today, we are finishing the book of Ecclesiastes. And I have to tell you, I've shed a tear or two because I'm loving being in this. I didn't really, but anyways, I, I'm loving being in this book. I've loved what God is speaking to us and what God is working into our lives. But we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 12 in this series that we've called Upside Down. And we live in a world that is upside down. And in that upside down world, there are priorities that have been put in front of us that really aren't God's priorities. We've been told how to treat and leverage people and circumstances and situations for our benefit rather than seeing life as it really is meant to be. It's a gift from God. And so Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he does that in a great way. The way that he reminds us of the, the value of life is he says, you're going to die. And then he's, he's like, do I have your attention now? And we say, yes, you do. And he says, okay, if you're going to die... Let's learn to live. And that's what this whole book has been about. And so we're going to look at these last verses, beginning in verse 9 through 14. I want to read them to you, and then we'll, we'll dig into it. Solomon writes, Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And I have kind of for my own self, and I put it up on our, on your, if you're in the app, you can go to the notes. I titled our message today, Sticks and Stones. Do you remember that phrase? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That is the biggest lie we all said in our childhood. First part's true, second part's a bold-faced lie. Because my guess is most of us in this room have healed from the wounds of sticks and stones but you probably have not healed from the wounds of those names that you were called. Those words that were spoken to you in anger. Those words that were spoken in impatience. So I don't think it's true that sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Maybe that's what we say when we say, I'm not going to let it affect me. Well, good for you, but it affects most of us. Words have power. And that's what we want to look at. That's what Solomon speaks. Let me give an example. If you don't know that this is true, let me give an example. When you go to that beautiful wedding and they, they, the, the, they get together and they say, I do. Do those words have meaning? How about these words? You're fired. Those words have meaning, don't they? Those words sting. I love what uh, former President Ronald Reagan said. He wrote this. He said, the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> words have power. I love that. That's so funny. And we, we, we say that like actions speak louder than words, but I'm not sure that's always true. Words do things. Words have power. Of course your actions matter, but what you say matters as well. In fact, the Bible tells us we give an account for what we say. Every word spoken, we will give an account for those words. 
That's terrifying. Words matter. It was words that set the world on fire in World War II. It was words. It might have been through words that your low self-esteem was born. You were told you aren't pretty, you aren't strong, you aren't good enough, you aren't capable. Words have the power to heal or to destroy. James 3 verse 6 says this, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. It's set among our members that it defiles the whole body. It sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. So James, tell us exactly how you really feel about words. Words have tremendous power. And let's not forget that the entirety of human destiny rested on one word from God. It's the word shalom. It all stems from God saying, I can't, I've come to bring you peace. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All over Ecclesiastes, Solomon is referred to himself as what? The preacher. He uses words to convey the heart and the will of God. Because words have power. In fact, let me just take this a bit further. Words spoken out loud. Now, all of us have words. You have words going on in your head right now. In a little bit, your words will be, I'm hungry. I wonder how the kids are doing right now. Right? We have, we have got words going on in our heads. But words spoken out loud even have a further power. They even have more power. Let me explain what I mean. Now, there's, there, there's a teaching that exists within the Christian world. Some of you might know it's called the word of faith. It has very different, there's a whole bunch of different gists. Uh, the idea is this. My words have power with God. So far, it sounds okay, but it gets a little bit, a little bit crazy here. If I speak these words, then God must do what I am requesting of God. And of course, that's created a lot of errors a lot of problems. I think the biggest issue with this is uh, when I think that my, like, you know, God, uh, you know, I'm not going to be sick anymore in Jesus' name. Uh, you might still get the flu. Hope you don't, but words are limited. But there is a teaching that said, now, but there's something to be really admired. And I think a lot of us have come from a background where you say, oh man, we don't agree with that and we don't like that. But I got to tell you one thing I really love about people that, that believe that my words have power. They, they have faith in God. They have faith in God. Oh, but the teaching is wrong. They got faith in God. Yeah, but we don't believe that. I know, but they got a lot of faith in God. I want to have that kind of faith in God that believes that when, you know what Jesus said? This is crazy. Listen to this, Mark 11, verse 24. Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. I think that might be one of the most misused verses, in, uh, underused verses in the entire Bible. Whatever you ask in my name, Believing you will have it. It's coming up to Christmas. It's time to put your wish list together. <laughs> and God says to you, listen, I don't need Christmas for that. Dream. Believe. Whatever you ask in my name. I mean, that, 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 that's, it's in the Bible that Jesus invites you to believe him. And I know many of us have this fear that we're going to, we don't, I don't want to become a person who just, you know, thinks that whatever I want, I can have. But you might become a person who doesn't think that God will do anything. 
And we need to believe that God is a faithful God who's able to do things. And his promises are still true, even today. Why not believe God at his words? And Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12 wants us to believe in the power of words. Most importantly, don't minimize God's words. When I was a kid, we were down in, um, I don't know where we were. We were somewhere in uh, Mexico. It was a wonderful time. Um, and um, I, had, I ate mole. Hated it. Hated it. And now that I've lived here, it's like I'm a heretic for saying that. And so somebody said, no, 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 you must have had bad mole. You must not have, it must not have been good. It must not have been good. So I was like, no, 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 no. Just try mine. I tried it. I was wrong. It's good. <laughs> There's chocolate, right? What's not better with chocolate? <laughs> right? One experience made me think it's all going to be bad. All of it. God's word has power to change everything and we need to not do anything that would hinder that. Look at James chapter 5, verse 13. It'll be on the screen behind me here. Uh, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I either believe this or I don't. And I think I've shared this with you before. When I was new in the ministry, I would always kind of pray for people that were sick. They would say, could you pray for me? And I'd pray for them, and then I would pray away my prayer. Here's how you do that. Lord, heal them. But if you don't, I was always like God's PR man. If it didn't work out, Lord, if it doesn't happen, Lord, and then I reread this, and I read that God's not so concerned about, he did, God doesn't need PR. He's doing really good. He just needs me to get out of the way, not in the way. God's doing just fine. What he wants me to do is to pray in faith. But what if? But what if what? What if God doesn't heal? Okay. What if he doesn't? It, it, that's not my... I need to be a person who is willing to speak those words of faith in prayer and believe that God can do anything. Words spoken have power. If you don't believe me, go to Genesis 1.1. You don't need to turn there right now. Just go to the first chapter of Genesis. Do you remember how powerful words are? Then God said. God spoke, things happened. We can see this even in our own lives. We can see this even in our own lives. Have you ever said something out loud to someone and then instantly regretted it? Anybody? Raise your hand. Have you ever said something to somebody and instantly regret? Or like a day later. Maybe you're like a day later person. That's okay. That's all right. <laughs> we all have those dumb moments in our lives where we're like, man, did I really have to say that? You think something and it's bad, but when you say it out loud, it has a lot more meaning, doesn't it? It has a lot more power. Words have power. That's why the Bible is not a picture book, by the way. It's why Jesus didn't come during the days of YouTube and just make a bunch of viral videos. No, he came at a time when the spoken word was everything. And the living word, who is Jesus, gave us the word that is alive to speak into our lives. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Last week, Solomon said, Remember your creator. We looked at that last week. 
In Ecclesiastes 12, remember your creator. Not just your God, but remember your creator. Remember that you are a created being. Even though it's an upside down world, you are a created being within God's creation. And so Solomon, we looked at this, we focused on when. When we should remember our creator. And he said, in your youth. And we looked at that. What does it mean to be in your youth? When Solomon wrote this, he was, when he said, if you're young, he meant anybody who had the capacity to still live. So aren't you glad if you're not that young in the world's eyes that Solomon still thought you were young? If, you're, if your heart is beating and you're still moving and, and, and your, your mind is working and you're, you're part of life, he says, remember your creator because he wants us to see our lives in this context. You are free. Life's success is not all up to you. You are a part of God's work, God's kingdom, God's creation. So in this final section, we're going to kind of answer not the when should I remember my creator, but the how and the why. How do I remember my creator and why should I remember my creator? Why and how should I live wisely in God's world. And Solomon's going to give us, I'm calling this um, Ecclesiastes summation in four words. Four words here at the end that are going to summarize for us the book of Ecclesiastes. And the first word is, as you can see on the screen, it's the word pleasure. It's the word pleasure. Now, I don't know, if I were to have you read Ecclesiastes, and then I said, give me one word that describes Ecclesiastes. I don't think pleasure would be on your top 100. I don't think you would read it and you would say, oh man, that is a book about joy and pleasure and delight and wonder. Probably not. You'd say misery, depression, I'm suicidal, uh, vanity, meaningless. You probably wouldn't think of pleasure. But notice what he writes in verse 10. Uh, well, let's start in verse 9 and we're just going to read through this. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people. He pondered and sought out. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. Words of truth. Um, in verse 10, uh, in, in several different translations, he uses the word, and in the, in the English Standard Version, the ESV, he actually uses the word delight. In the original language, it's more of the word delight. The preacher sought to find words of delight. Not just acceptable, but words of delight. Because truth sets us free. Solomon's perspective on life and happiness and meaning are so different than the way the world tells us to see life. In an upside down world, we avoid the even thought of death because thinking about death will bum us out. Solomon says, are you kidding? Embrace it so that you can really get the most out of your life. If you avoid the one thing that is true, it's like avoiding an iceberg in front of you while navigating the sea. You can't avoid the one unavoidable. Rather, embrace it and navigate around it in that sense. If death is our one real, there's no guarantees that you're going to always be happy, always going to be sad, always going to be successful, always going to be in misery. There's no guarantees of any of those things. The one thing we know, we're going to die. It's not the bad news. 
It's the good news. Because now we can say, so then how does God want me to live? If I am going to die, how should I live? You and I, and I got to remind you of this. It's so important. You've been saved by Jesus for great purpose and because he loves you. We're, We're finishing Ecclesiastes but this is a big point, and we've got to walk away with this point. It's, it's this. How should I remember our creator, my creator? And Solomon tells us, by listening to his word with delight. Not just that they're acceptable words, but that they're joyful, wonderful words. It's to discover this. And this might be kind of contrary to your thought process for the book of Ecclesiastes, but Solomon wants you to walk away saying, I get it now. God is not a divine killjoy. God wants me to experience delight and joy. God is not angry. God is not grumpy. God is not frustrated. It is is absolutely false. Listen, this is so important. When Christians today want to give people the impression that God is angry and that's why some bad thing happened somewhere, that is, that is minimizing the gospel. And let me explain. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus bore upon himself all of the wrath of God. If there's wrath that God is pouring out on people because they're sinners today, I've heard this with fires and earthquakes, tsunamis, oh, that God's judging them. Friends, God already judged sin on the cross. It is an utter lie, utter lie to make it sound like things are happening because God is judging a people group. Go back further into the book of Genesis and God said, I will never do that again. I'll never do that again. God poured out all of his wrath on his son Jesus so that when he looked at you and when he looked at me, he would never be angry. He'd have only love. Because he took it all out on his son Jesus. Don't minimize the gospel by assuming that God is still mad because, oh, well, they are not walking with God and God's going to judge them. He's not going to judge them. The, the, the thing about the gospel is this, is if you don't receive Jesus into your heart, you're judging yourself. God's not, ju- God's not sending a person to hell. They're going there of their own choice. He's done everything he can to ensure that nobody would go to hell. Don't minimize the gospel by now saying that God is judging people. That is a terrible, terrible lie. God is not against people. Well, they don't believe like us. Well, neither did you at one point. But he loved you enough to go after you. Notice what he says in verse 10 once more. The preacher sought to find acceptable or words of delight. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. I think we tend to, when we talk about the Bible, we tend to get preoccupied with the truth part and we tend to forget the delight part. In fact, if you were to read this on your own, most likely you would gravitate to that word truth. Why? Because we know that the truth is important. There's no underestimating or under. Uh, valuing the truth. It's so worthwhile to have a clear sense of what you believe. God's word is the truth. If you want to know what's true and what's not true, read the Bible. Get into it for your life, for the world we live in. It's worthwhile. But in the process, I believe we can become so overly focused on this one idea about God's word. It is true 
that we forget that there's another part that Solomon says here. It's also delightful. It also brings great joy. It's acceptable. We can get so focused on we have the truth and everything else that's out there is a lie. That's a, that's a true statement. But don't miss the part where it says it also brings delight and joy. Isn't it true we believe Christianity is right and everybody else is wrong? Not exactly. We believe that God is right and all of us are wrong. Does that make sense? There's a big difference. I don't think I'm right and an unsaved person is wrong. I think God's right and all of us are wrong. Equalized. Equalized. Solomon doesn't just say that God's word is truth, but he says it's delightful. The Bible is beautiful. We're going to actually talk more about this in January. We're going to look at understanding the will of God but also learning to understand the heart of God. Chances are, in all of our lives, we are unbalanced in those two things. And we're going to look at that. Very important. Let me use an analogy. When a guy gets a girlfriend, or a girl gets a boyfriend, you can flip it around, use however you want. And this guy says to his parents, she's the most beautiful girl in the world. He's looking at his mom and he says, she's the most beautiful girl in the world. How's the mom supposed to feel in that moment, right? Well, now the mom understands. This guy is not, uh, you know, he's not saying that everybody else is ugly because she's beautiful. He's not saying, mom, you're not pretty. What he's doing is he's saying, or, or what about this? Have you ever, you know, when a, somebody shows you their newborn baby? Isn't she the most beautiful baby in the whole world? You're like, no, my kids were. Shut up, mine's pretty, right? It's, no, no, no. We say, oh, yes. And then later we're like, mm-mm, not even close. That kid was not pretty. That was not a good-looking kid. But in the moment, we're like, oh, my gosh, she's so beautiful. Now you're going to wonder, right? We're all going to see each other's babies. And we're going to, no, 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 no. Here's the real reality. When you see a baby, listen, whether you've got 10 kids, no kids, three, when you see a beautiful baby, you don't, you're not saying this is the truth. You're saying this is delightful. They are beautiful. Aren't all babies just the cutest thing in the world? It's not saying that your kids aren't cute. Oh, she's the most beautiful person. You're not, it's not a truth statement that removes everybody else as being ugly and terrible. It's a statement of delight. They are beautiful. The analogy doesn't totally hold up because the Bible is not subjective. The Bible is not a book of subjectivity, like our taste in a man or in a woman. If you only see the Bible as a hardline book of truth, you might not be discovering the joy of God's word into your life. It's either right or wrong, black or white. Yes, but have you seen the red there, the heart? Have you experienced the heartbeat of the word of God? Truth is beautiful, and beauty is is always going to be, it's in this context, it will be true. One Bible scholar put it like this. He said, here's a great test for us to take to discover whether or not we find the Bible first pleasurable. He wrote this. It won't be anywhere, but just listen to this. You can measure whether you find the Bible delightful, not by how often you read it or by how much of it you read, and not even by whether you find it easy or difficult to read, but by whether you approach the Bible expecting to be surprised. 
Bible delight is born when you expect it to teach you something that you did not already know. There's the challenge. That's why it's important sometimes to get a new Bible, one that's not all marked up. Start afresh. You know, I would mark up my Bible and then the next time through only read the marked up parts. Just the good stuff. It's funny though, each year, each decade, each experience, each circumstance, what is the good stuff? Changes. It keeps changing. Listen to the words of King David in Psalm 19. It'll be behind me here. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, much more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. That's how the psalmist saw the word of God. He didn't just say it's about right and it's about wrong and make sure you get on the right side. He said it is so full of delight and beauty. To write something like this requires me to have a view of myself. I'm poor, but God's word is rich. I am in need, but God's word is enough. I am unsure, but God's word is reassuring. Discover the pleasure of knowing Jesus. Word number two. You're like, oh my gosh, it's only word two. I promise, we'll move. Word number two, pain. Look at verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 12. The words of the wise are like goads. The words of the scholars are like well-driven nails given by one Shepherd. You know, the goad was used by the farmer to keep the animal on the straight path. Staffs with sharp nails used to poke and to prod an animal to keep them in the right direction. If the animal moved to the left or to the right, pain would be used to get them back on the straight and narrow. Ecclesiastes, and really the whole Bible, is filled with nails, goads. I'm sure you have. I know I have. If if I really pay attention to what I'm reading, and let's be honest, sometimes we read it and we just go into auto mode. It's like driving to work, you stop paying attention, you just know what you're doing. Sometimes we read the Bible that way. But if you really stop and you really start like reading it, like really get into it, it's offensive. It offends my carnality, it offends my thought process, it offends my mentality. It it offends me. It's it's nails that are being driven into me, poking me to say, hey, get back on the right path. You're veering this way. You're veering that way. Get back. The Bible is full of sharp words, and they are meant to cause pain. Why? Because God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He's working on us. He's not going to just say, you know, oh, I love you, and I love you. Oh, it's no big deal. Oh, Lord, I'm such a sinner. Nah, don't worry about it. Friends, I mean, he died for our sins. He cares about holiness. He really, really does. Just don't forget that he cares about it so much more than you ever will or that I ever will. Remember that, um, I love that, that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That, that my human, I'm prone to move away from God 
When, when, when those t- times in my life when I'm prone to seek God and I'm wondering, is that the Lord or is it just me? It's the Lord. When I'm prone to wander, that's me. I got that one. There is no better GPS for the soul than the Word of God. There's no better GPS. Here is how to evaluate your relationship to God's Word and the pain it can cause. When was the last time you read something in the Bible, it made you wince, and then you submitted to it anyways? You read something that bothered you, and it bothered you because I need to change, you need to change, but you still chose to obey it. There is nothing that is being squandered more in the world. The greatest wealth that is being squandered in human history is people who know God's truth and don't do it. Forget all the billions of dollars being wasted on all that. We all get this righteous judgment. Let's not waste anything. Quit wasting what you know. Quit. Wa- I mean, the greatest wealth the world has ever been given is the truth of God's word, and yet we read them and go, yeah, that bothers me. I don't know. I'll stick with the other parts. And we treat God's word kind of like a salad bar. Ooh, I like this. Oh, I don't like this. I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I'm just stating a reality. I do this, you do this. We read things, I nod my head and I say, yeah, that's so good, but I do what I'm going to do. And that's what God's trying to change in each one of us. One author wrote it like this. He said, don't domesticate the Bible. And then I put it in these words. Live in God's world, not the one you're trying to create for yourself. We have to live in God's world, not the one I'm trying to create. It's easy to obey parts of the Bible that align with your passions. It's easy to obey parts of the Bible that align with your dreams. What about the parts that don't? Let pain have a place in your Christian life. Because let me tell you something, it's going to have one anyways. It's going to have one anyways. Why not learn to work in God's economy and not apart from that. Word number three in summarizing the book of Ecclesiastes is the word perspective. It's the word perspective. Verse 13, Ecclesiastes 12, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Wow, Solomon, you're strong about this. Why would I let the Bible delight me but also let it cause me pain. And this verse promotes an incredibly wild truth. This is the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. All of us are compartmentalizing life. Our thought process, our emotions, our joys, our hurts, our past, our future, our pre- we're all building little boxes and we put things in their appropriate box. And where hurt really comes is when, when something from my past and I take a bit of it and I move it into my present, I take a bit of it and I move it into my future. And so we want to try to get it all and just put it in the past, just leave it in the past. But here's what Solomon says. You want to l- learn to live a truly holistic life, a whole life, fear God, keep his commandments. Of course, if you don't know this, let me explain. When the Bible says fear, really we would use the word honor or respect, but kind of like a strong way of saying that. It doesn't mean like cower in fear. It just means have a healthy respect for God. Respect God and keep his commandments. We compartmentalize. We have hopes, we have dreams, 
And in those we have responsibilities. I'm a student, I'm a spouse, I'm a parent, I'm a friend. But Solomon says, first and foremost, you have a responsibility to your maker. Remember your creator. Your first, what you owe first is to God. We owe God first. And what this means is that we first get our clarity, our dreams, our understandings of our responsibilities from God. Imagine how much easier it would be in life if we started with God. Now, I can say that. I don't always do that. Why should I be a good employee? Because I'm fearing God and I'm keeping his commandments. Why should I be a good student? Because I'm fearing God and I'm keeping his commandments. Why should I be a good son or daughter? Because I'm fearing God and I want to keep his commandments. If God calls me to honor, if God calls me to be faithful or whatever it is, then I'm going to honor, I'm going to fear God and I'm going to keep his commandments. Everything I do, I do it because I first and foremost respect God and want to keep his commandments. That simplifies life, but it creates a whole bunch of other problems. If I do keep God first, this is what is going to happen. I think of the, uh, you know, became a famous movie, The Chariots of Fire. Maybe some of you remember that movie. I think of Eric Liddell, an Olympic runner who said, I'm going to fear God and not run on certain days. That was his conviction. And so he gave up winning certain gold medals in the Olympics because he was unwilling to run at certain times. He would later, he would uh, very quickly after the Olympics, he would be a missionary in China. He would serve the people in China for many years. He was, of course, uh, he died in a, in a camp in China. Um, he would run. I remember reading about one time he went to Japan. He was so famous and he went and ran a race, but the race had gotten started later than it was supposed to. And so he ran the race and he won the race and he ran right out of the race and he ran all the way to the dock and jumped on the boat that was heading back home. Just left, you know, didn't care about the rest of it. For Eric Liddell, putting God first cost him gold. Pretty dramatic. When you put God first, there's a simple way to live. I mean, to just say, I'm going to put God first. But it'll have other consequences, other pains, worthwhile, but things that you have to consider. If you're going to follow the Lord, it might cost you something. Is it worth it? You have to figure that out. The Bible says it is, 100%, but you and I have to figure that out. We have to figure it out. I will, it'll make us more joyful and less grumpy and more generous when we follow God. Did you know that? When you put God first, you'll be less grumpy. Oh, this stupid world and these dumb people. And da, 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 da. When you just, I just got to focus on the Lord. I don't have to have my eyes looking around at everybody. I don't got to get cynical and mean. I just got to focus on the, you know, when, I, when we keep our eyes on Jesus, we can remain tender and thoughtful towards all people. When the Bible says to fear God, it means to honor him. Fearing God makes us wise and it teaches us to live on our knees. Fourth word, it's the word preparation. Preparation. Verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
Okay, so as we've seen, simple wisdom is helping us to prepare for the end. I think one of the hardest parts about Ecclesiastes and the Bible in general is letting it instruct us that there are no immediate answers for some things in life. And the Bible's clear up front. We forget it, but the Bible's totally clear about this. There are some things in life that do not have an answer this side of heaven. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, I'll read it. It'll be on the screen here. Solomon writes, I returned and I considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. In other words, there's some things in life that just don't have an answer. Why did this happen to me? What is the answer? And the hardest thing is when we discover there is no answer. We're left with the reality that in this life, there's not always answers, but we do know one thing. It's this. God will set everything in order in his time. God will put it all in order in his time. Now, those are words, that's a caveat, but you can't forget those words, in his time. Friends, his time probably isn't your time. It really doesn't feel like it's my time. I keep saying, Lord, this is a good time. And sometimes I get nothing. Gosh, I believe that there's more Christians afraid to trust God, not because we don't know the truth, but because we do, and it bothers us. And we're afraid to trust him in some of these areas. It's difficult. Have you ever had those terrible dreams where you dreamed that you were unprepared? Do you remember when you were, do you remember when you were getting your license Driver's license. That week before, you're like, you keep waking up like, I showed up and I didn't know the test. Okay, the famous psychological dream of this is that you went to school with nothing on or with, in your pajamas. You showed up unprepared. And there, there is in all of us this fear of, oh my gosh, what if I'm not ready? What if I'm unprepared? And the book of Ecclesiastes says that a day is coming when some people will discover that they were not ready for the most important thing in life, standing before God. It won't be a dream. Their life has been one long excuse in avoiding reality, ignoring the one thing that we know is true, which is our death. For so many people, they live to avoid that entire idea God's word is meant to shake you out of that dream and say, it's not a dream, it's a reality. Get ready. Let God love you today. Why give up when you can trust God today? For the believer, death and judgment are not things to fear. That's a New Testament perspective. That's not an Old Testament perspective. That's a New Testament. Because Solomon says this, all through Ecclesiastes, there is nothing to gain under the sun And that is true when you're trying to just live it in in this way. But Paul the Apostle says, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because I know Jesus. Because I know, in fact, the way Paul talks about death, it's so interesting because as much as the Old Testament does not avoid death, neither does the New Testament. The New Testament, just to be clear, is built upon the idea that this one person we love so much died. We're built around, we we are a faith that focuses on death. Now you could say, what a bummer. No, no, no. It's the delight of the New Testament. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
It's the greatest joy of the whole New Testament that God became a man to die for all of us. The thing is, is in the New Testament, Jesus flipped the script. Jesus threw it all upside down. There's nothing to gain from death, says Solomon. It's true. And then Jesus came and he said, but I'm going to destroy death. How's that? I'll destroy death. So that death, as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? The sting of death and sin is no more. It has no more. If you've put your faith in Jesus, death has no more power over you. You will live forever. Now, don't mistake what the Bible thinks about death. Death is not the idea of this body ending. In fact, Peter talks about death, or he talks about the body ending. He says, one day this tent will be done, and I'll get an eternal body. The Bible doesn't describe that as death. In fact, Jesus spoke about this when he says, some of you fear what they can do to your body, but fear God who could destroy your soul. So the idea is this, what you and I think of as death, maybe we're wrong. In fact, we are wrong. Ready? Death is not the end of your body. What the Bible describes as death is is that person who didn't put their faith in Jesus and will live for eternity apart from God. That's death. Death is not the end. It's not your last breath because you're going to keep living. Just not in this body. That's not death. Death is separation from God. Just try to imagine with me if maybe we aren't promoting a, a false view of God, if your view of God that you are promoting doesn't, say, doesn't sound like this, God is so worth knowing that he is the very reason heaven even exists. Hell is being absent from God. If that doesn't remind you of how much joy we should be bringing into the world that we live in, because the absence of God is hell. It is a place and it is a It is a state of being. You will never experience that if you've put your faith in Jesus. The body will end. You'll take a last breath here. I'm not trying to minimize dying. Please please don't don't misunderstand that. But if we just see it in its context, you will breathe your last breath here and you will inhale in heaven because of Jesus. Because death has no more power over you. You guys are so close to getting charismatic, but you're right on the edge there. (laughs) Man, I got to set you free, people. We got to get there. Golly. (laughs) You're like, amen. 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 I think that's good. Yeah. (laughs) So if your view of the Christian faith isn't full of delight and wonder and adventure and excitement and the unknown, then you're missing something. No, it's about truth and it's about right and it's about wrong and I'm right and they're wrong. (laughs) I hope heaven's not like you're describing Christianity. Sounds terrible. Because in heaven, you're going to stand next to somebody and you're going to be like, holy cow, you're here. (laughs) It's not going to be so black and white in heaven like that. Oh my gosh, I never thought you would be here, you know. (laughs) Probably is never going to happen. You know why? Because you're going to be there and you're going to say, holy cow, I'm here. 
Not me, you. I'm talking about you. You understand? The delight. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that life in this world is short. It's just so short. It's going to be over so soon. And the things that we're told you need to give the utmost importance to, Solomon says, I'm telling you, they don't matter. You're not going to take that with you to heaven. Why would you treasure it here on earth if it's not going to go with you? No, Jesus said, build treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust will ever destroy. Where God is. Put into your life, put into your value system the things that truly do matter. Let God flip your world upside down. Stop thinking that, oh, the world is upside down, but we get it right side up. What I'm trying to tell you is this. Let's just acknowledge that we're the ones that need God to flip our world upside down. I need to see things from his perspective, but it starts by me recognizing I don't see things from the right perspective. And that's okay. God is still for me. This life is a vapor. And if that's true, then I'm going to live every breath of this life working towards the one thing, the one purpose that's going to continue on for eternity. Oh, I should just quit my job. No, keep your job. Who cares about finals then? Nah. You know, you know who cares about finals week? Jesus. <laughs> who cares about taxes? Jesus. Why should I even, you know, why should I? Let me, let me just challenge you on this. Give. Give. Why? Because you're building treasure in heaven. I'm, I'm telling you, give. And give when it hurts. And give when it doesn't hurt. Give. Be generous. Why? Because you're just building treasure in heaven. Oh, but it hurts right now. Okay, but man alive, are you going to be excited in heaven? Build in heaven. Give. We're going to close in worship today as we always do. But as you can see, uh, we have the elements of communion in the front. We also have them in the back. And this is just a chance for us to pause. I love worshiping at the end of a service because I think sometimes we need to be able to respond to what we've been learning, what God's been putting into our soul. And I hope what God's been putting into your soul through the book of Ecclesiastes, and especially today, is this. Life is worth living because of Jesus. Life has value because it's going to continue on into eternity. Don't let the discouragements of right now hold you back. If you're in a valley, just know there is a mountaintop coming. If you're in a valley today, don't forget there is not only a mountaintop coming, but there are, there are fields, there are, there's beauty to be seen in heaven that eye hath not seen nor ear hath heard. But it's coming. Don't lose hope today because you can't see it. God sees it. Do you trust the Lord? And so I'm going to ask you to do something today. I'm going to ask you to humble yourself when you take communion today. Don't do it out of the religion of, it's what we do, we sing our songs, we come up, we eat a cracker, we take some juice. No, humble yourself. I am a creature in God's world, but I'm going to remember my creator who saved me. Father, thank you so much for your blood that was shed, for your body that was broken. 
Thank you, Jesus, that as we partake today, Lord, and, and even just these words, we speak them in faith. God, come, Holy Spirit. Humble us, Lord, as we remember what you did for us. And refresh us, Lord, because we remember what you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus, that your body was broken and your blood was shed so that we could be made whole again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope and pray that the ministry of Calvary San Diego is strengthening and encouraging you in your faith. To follow along with what God is doing here at Calvary SD, we encourage you to download our app. Also, if you would like to invest in the ministry of Calvary San Diego, you can financially partner with us by visiting our website at calvarysd.com give. Thank you so much and have a great day.